Preface and Chapter One of Indian Frontier Policy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Indian Frontier Policy: An Historical Sketch, by General Sir John Adai, G.C.B. R.A. Read for LibriVox.org by David Barnes. Preface. The subject of our policy on the northwest frontier of India is one of great importance, as affecting the general welfare of our eastern empire, and especially interesting at the present time, when military operations on a considerable scale are being conducted against a combination of the independent tribes along the frontier. It must be understood that the present condition of affairs is no mere sudden outbreak on the part of our turbulent neighbours. Its causes lie far deeper, and are the consequences of events in bygone years. In the following pages I have attempted to give a short historical summary of its varying phases, in the hope that I may thus assist the public in some degree to understand its general bearings and to form a correct opinion of the policy which should be pursued in the future. John Adai, General Chapter 1. Events prior to and including the First Afghan War of 1839-41 Covering Proposed Invasion of India by Napoleon I Mission of Burns to Kabul Its Failure First Afghan War, 1839-41, Its Vicissitudes and Collapse In considering the important and somewhat intricate subject of policy on the northwestern frontier of our Indian Empire, it will be desirable, in the first place, to give a concise history of the events which have guided our action, and which for many years past have exercised a predominating influence in that part of our eastern dominion. Speaking generally, it may, I think, be said that the main features of our policy on the northwestern frontier have been determined by the gradual advance of Russia southwards, and partly also by the turbulent character of the people of Afghanistan and of the independent tribes who inhabit the great region of mountains which lie between Russia and ourselves. These two circumstances, the first having been the most powerful, have led us into great wars and frontier expeditions, which as a rule have been costly, and in some cases unjust, and their consequences have not tended to strengthen our position, either on the frontier or in India itself. It will be well, therefore, to give an outline of the Russian conquests in Central Asia to the north of Afghanistan, and also of our dealings with the rulers of Kabul in bygone years and we shall then be better able to judge of our present position, and to determine the principles which should guide our northwestern frontier policy. One of the first threats of invasion of India, early in the century, was planned at Tilsit, and is thus described by Kay in History of the War in Afghanistan. Quote, Whilst the followers of Alexander and Napoleon were abandoning themselves to convivial pleasures, those monarchs were spending quiet evenings together discussing their future plans, and projecting joint schemes of conquest. 
It was then that they meditated the invasion of Hindustan by a confederate army uniting on the plains of Persia, and no secret was made of the intention of the two great European potentates to commence in the following spring a hostile demonstration contre les possessions de la Compagnie des Indes. Unquote. The peril, however, was averted by a treaty at Tehran in March 1809, in which the Shah of Persia covenanted not to permit any European force whatever to pass through Persia towards India, or towards the ports of that country. And so the visionary danger passed away. The old southern boundary of Russia in Central Asia, extended from the north of the Caspian by Orenburg and Orsk, across to the old Mongolian city of Semipalatinsk, and was guarded by a cordon of forts and Cossack outposts. It was about two thousand miles in length, and, quote, abutted on the great Kyrgyz steppe, and to a certain extent controlled the tribes pasturing in the vicinity, but by no means established the hold of Russia on that pathless, and for the most part lifeless, waste. Unquote. Quarterly Review, October 1865. During all the earlier years of the century, while we were establishing our power in India, constant intrigues and wars occurred in Persia, Afghanistan, and Central Asia, and rumours were occasionally heard of threats against ourselves, which formed the subject of diplomatic treatment from time to time, but in reality the scene was so distant that our interests were not seriously affected, and it was not until 1836 that they began to exercise a powerful influence as regards our policy on the northwest frontier. In that year, Lord Auckland was Governor-General, and Captain Alexander Burns was sent on a commercial mission up the Indus and through the Khyber Pass to Kabul, where he was received in a friendly manner by the Emir Dost Mohammed. It must be borne in mind that neither Sindh nor the Punjab was then under our rule, so that our frontiers were still far distant from Afghanistan. It was supposed at the time that Russia was advancing southward towards India in league with Persia, and the mission of Burns was in reality political, its object being to induce the emir to enter into a friendly alliance. Dost Mohammed was quite willing to meet our views, and offered to give up altogether any connection with the two powers named. It, however, soon became apparent that our interests were by no means identical, his great object, as we found, being to recover the Peshawar district, which had been taken a few years previously by Runjit Singh, while we, on the other hand, courted his friendship chiefly in order that his country might prove a barrier against the advance of Russia and Persia. These respective views were evidently divergent, and the issues doubtful when suddenly a Russian envoy, Vikovich, also on a so-called commercial mission, arrived at Kabul, offering the emir money and assistance against the Sikhs. This altered the aspect of affairs. Burns wrote to the Governor-General that the Russians were evidently trying to outbid us. Still some hope remained, until definite instructions arrived from Lord Auckland, declining to mediate with or to act against Runjit Singh, the ruler of Punjab. 
the emir felt that we made great demands on him, but gave him nothing in return. It then became evident that the mission of Burns was a failure, and in April 1838 he returned to India. It was our first direct effort to provide against a distant and unsubstantial danger, and it failed, but unfortunately we did not take the lesson to heart. In the meantime, the Shah of Persia, instigated by Russia, besieged Herat, and after months of fruitless effort, and in consequence of our sending troops to the Persian Gulf, the Shah at length withdrew his army. It was not only the hostile efforts of the Shah on Herat in 1838, which were a cause of anxiety to the Indian government, but as Kay writes in War in Afghanistan, quote, Far out in the distance, beyond the mountains of the Hindu Kush, there was the shadow of a great northern army, tremendous in its indistinctness, sweeping across the wilds and deserts of Central Asia towards the frontiers of Hindustan. Unquote. That great northern army, as we now know, but did not know then, was the column of Perovsky, which had left Orenburg for the attempted conquest of Kiva, but which subsequently perished from the hardships and pestilence in the snowy wastes of the Barsuk Desert, north of the Aral. In view of all the circumstances, of the supposed designs of Russia and Persia, and of the hostility and incessant intrigues in Afghanistan, the government of India were sorely perplexed, and opinions amongst the authorities differed widely as to the policy to be pursued. Lord Auckland, however, at length decided on the assemblage of a British force for service across the Indus. In his manifesto issued in December 1838, he first alluded to the Burns mission and the causes of its failure. He then referred to the claims of Shah Suja, a former ruler of Afghanistan, who had been living for some years in exile within our territories, and said we had determined, in cooperation with the Sikhs, to restore him to power as Emir of Kabul. It was arranged that Shah Suja should enter Afghanistan with his own troops, such as they were, supported by a British army marching through Sindh and Baluchistan. The Governor-General expressed a hope that tranquillity would thus be established on the frontier, and a barrier formed against external aggression, and he ended by proclaiming that when the object was accomplished, the British army would be withdrawn. This was indeed a momentous decision. The Commander-in-Chief in India, Sir Henry Fane, had already given an adverse opinion, saying that, quote, Every advance you make beyond the Sutledge, in my opinion, adds to your military weakness. Unquote. On the decision becoming known in England, many high authorities, and the public generally, disapproved of the expedition. The Duke of Wellington said that quote, Our difficulties would commence where our military successes ended, unquote, and that quote, the consequences of crossing the Indus once to settle a government in Afghanistan will be a perennial march into that country. Unquote. The Marquis of Wellesley spoke of quote, the folly of occupying a land of rocks, sands, deserts, and snow. Unquote. Sir Charles Metcalfe from the first protested and said quote, 
Depend upon it, the surest way to bring Russia down upon ourselves is for us to cross the Indus and meddle with the countries beyond it. Unquote. Mr. Elphinstone wrote, quote, If you send 27,000 men up the Bolam to Kandahar and can feed them, I have no doubt you can take Kandahar and Kabul and set up Sujar. But as for maintaining him in a poor, cold, strong, and remote country, among a turbulent people like the Afghans, I own it seems to me to be hopeless. If you succeed, you will, I fear, weaken the position against Russia. The Afghans are neutral, and would have received your aid against invaders with gratitude. They will now be disaffected, and glad to join any invader to drive you out. Unquote. Mr. Tucker, of the Court of Directors, wrote to the Duke of Wellington, quote, We have contracted an alliance with Shah Suja, although he does not possess a rood of ground in Afghanistan, nor a rupee which he did not derive from our bounty as a quondam pensioner. Unquote. He added that, quote, Even if we succeed, we must maintain him in the government by a large military force, eight hundred miles from our frontier and our resources. Unquote. The above were strong and weighty opinions and arguments against the rash and distant enterprise on which the government of India were about to embark. But there is more to be said. Independently of the result in Afghanistan itself, it must be borne in mind that the proposed line of march of the army necessarily led through Sindh and Baluchistan, countries which, whatever their former position may have been, were then independent both of the Amir and of ourselves. The force from Bengal, consisting of about 9,500 men of all arms, with 38,000 camp followers, accompanied by Shah Suja's levy, left Ferozepur in December, and crossing the Indus arrived at Dadur, the entrance to the Bolam Pass, in March 1839. Difficulties with the emirs of Sindh at once arose, chiefly as to our passage through their territories, but their remonstrances were disregarded, and they were informed that, quote, the day they connected themselves with any other power than England would be the last of their independence, if not of their rule, unquote. K's War in Afghanistan the army then advanced through the Bolam and reached Quetta on March the 26th. But here again, obstacles similar in character to those just described occurred, and Sir Alexander Burns visited the ruler of Baluchistan, the Khan of Kelat, demanding assistance, especially as to supplies of food. The prince, with prophetic truth, pointed out that though we might restore Shah Suja, we would not carry the Afghans with us, and would fail in the end. He alluded to the devastation which our march had already caused in the country, but having been granted a subsidy, unwillingly consented to afford us assistance, and the army, leaving possible enemies in its rear, passed on, and reached Kandahar without opposition in April. At the end of June it recommenced its march northwards, and Guzni having been stormed and captured, our troops without further fighting arrived at Kabul on April the 6th. Dost Mohammed, deserted for the time by his people, fled northward over the Hindu Kush, 
finding a temporary refuge in Bukhara, and Shah Suja reigned in his stead. So far the great expedition had apparently accomplished its object, and the success of the tripartite treaty between ourselves, the Sikhs, and the new Amir had been successfully carried out, almost entirely, however, by ourselves as the predominant partner. The time, therefore, would seem to have arrived when, in fulfilment of Lord Auckland's proclamation, the British army should be withdrawn from Afghanistan. For the moment this appeared to be the case, but in reality it was not so, and our position soon became dangerous, then critical, and at last desperate. In the first place the long line of communication was liable at any time to be interrupted, as already mentioned. Then again the arrival of Shah Suja had excited no enthusiasm, and the very fact that we were foreigners in language, religion, and race rendered our presence hateful to his subjects. In short, the new emir was, and continued to be, a mere puppet, supported in authority by British bayonets. These conditions were apparent from the first day of his arrival, and grew in intensity until the end. Shah Suja himself soon discovered that his authority over his people was almost nominal, and although he chafed at our continued presence in the country, he also felt that the day of our departure would be the last of his reign, and that our withdrawal was under the circumstances impossible. But the situation was equally complicated from our own point of view. If, as originally promised, the British troops were withdrawn, the failure of the expedition would at once become apparent by the anarchy which would ensue. On the other hand, to retain an army in the far distant mountains of Afghanistan would not only be a breach of faith, but, while entailing enormous expense, would deprive India of soldiers who might be required elsewhere. After lengthy consideration, it was decided to reduce the total of our force in the country, while retaining a hold for the present on Kabul, Ghuzni, and Kandahar, together with the passes of the Khyber and Bolam, in short, the British army was weakly scattered about in a region of mountains, amongst a hostile people, and with its long lines of communication insufficiently guarded. Both in a military and a political point of view, the position was a false and dangerous one. General Sir John Keane, who was about to return to India, writing at the time, said, quote, Mark my words, it will not be long before there is here some signal catastrophe. Unquote. During the summer of 1840, there were troubles both in the Khyber and Bolam passes. In the former, the tribes, incensed at not receiving sufficient subsidies, attacked the outposts and plundered our stores, while in Baluchistan matters were so serious that a British force was sent and captured Kelat, the Khan being killed, and part of his territory handed over to Shah Suja. Footnote. In the life of Sir Robert Sandman, recently published, it is stated that the alleged treachery of Mirab Khan, which cost him his life, was on subsequent inquiry not confirmed. End footnote. Rumours from Central Asia also added to our anxieties, 
although the failure of the Russian attempt on Kiva became known some months later, it excited apprehension at the time amongst our political officers in Kabul. Sir Alexander Burns, during the winter of 1839, expressed opinions which were curiously inconsistent with each other. Quote, I maintain that man to be an enemy to his country who recommends a soldier to be stationed west of the Indus, unquote, while at the same moment he advocated the advance of our troops over the Hindu Kush into Balk, so as to be ready to meet the Russians in the following May. Sir William McNaughton, the chief political officer in Kabul, went still further, and in April 1840 not only urged a march on Bukhara, but also contemplated sending a mission to Kokand, in order, as he said, quote, to frustrate the knavish tricks of the Russians in that quarter. Unquote. Our position, however, at that time, was sufficiently precarious without adding to our anxieties by distant expeditions in Central Asia, even had the Russians established themselves in the principalities, which at that time was not the case. Not only was Afghanistan itself seething with treachery and intrigues from one end to the other, but the Sikhs in the Punjab, our nominal allies, had, since the death of Runjit Singh, become disloyal and out of hand. Baluchistan was in tumult. The tribes in the Khyber, ever ready for mischief, incessantly threatened our communications, so that we were certainly in no condition to enter upon further dangerous expeditions against distant, imaginary foes. Sir Jasper Nichols, the commander-in-chief, strongly objected to any advance. Quote, in truth, we are much weaker now than in 1838. Unquote. During the latter months of 1840 and in 1841, matters became steadily worse, and all Afghanistan seemed ripe for revolt. We are in a stew here, wrote Sir William McNaughton in September. It is reported that the whole country on this side of the Oxus is up in favour of Dost Mohammed, who is certainly advancing in great strength. Unquote. Again, in a letter to Lord Auckland, he said, quote, that affairs in this quarter have the worst possible appearance, unquote. and he quoted the opinion of Sir Willoughby Cotton that, quote, unless the Bengal troops are instantly strengthened, we cannot hold the country. Unquote. At this critical period, however, Dost Mohammed was heavily defeated at Bamian, on the Hindu Kush, voluntarily surrendering shortly afterwards, and for the moment prospects looked brighter. But the clouds soon gathered again, and the end was at hand. The Governor-General of India had throughout the whole war wisely and steadfastly resisted the proposed further operations in Central Asia, and the Court of Directors in London wrote as follows, quote, we pronounce our decided opinion that, for many years to come, the restored monarchy will have need of a British force in order to maintain peace in its own territory and prevent aggression from without. And they go on. We again desire you seriously to consider which of the two alternatives, 
a speedy retreat from Afghanistan, or a considerable increase of the military force in that country, you may feel it your duty to adopt. We are convinced that you have no middle course to pursue with safety and with honour. The government of India, hesitating to the last, failed in adopting either of the alternatives. In November 1841, Sir Alexander Burns was treacherously murdered by a mob in Kabul, which was followed by an insurrection and the defeat of our troops. General Elphinstone, who was in command, writing to Sir W. McNaughton on November the 24th, said that, quote, from the want of provisions and forage, the reduced state of our troops, the large number of wounded and sick, the difficulty of defending the extensive and ill-situated cantonment we occupy, the near approach of winter, our communications cut off, no prospect of relief, and the whole country in arms against us, I am of opinion that it is not feasible any longer to maintain our position in this country, and that you ought to avail yourself of the offer to negotiate that has been made to you." Unquote. This was conclusive. Our envoy, early in December, met the Afghan chiefs, and agreed that we should immediately evacuate the country, and that Dost Mohammed, who was in exile in India, should return. On December the 23rd, Sir William McNaughton was treacherously murdered at a conference with the Afghan Sirdars, within sight of the British cantonment, and then came the end. The British force at Kabul, leaving its guns, stores, and treasure behind, commenced its retreat on January the 6th, 1842, but incessantly attacked during its march, and almost annihilated in the Khord Kabul Pass, it ceased to exist as an organized body. General Elphinstone and other officers, invited to a conference by Akbar Khan, were forcibly detained as hostages, and on January the 13th a solitary Englishman, Dr. Bryden, arrived at Jalalabad, being, with the exception of a few prisoners, the sole remaining representative of the force. I have given this short sketch of the First Afghan War because, disastrous as it was, the causes of our failure were due throughout far more to rash and mistaken policy than to any shortcomings of the British troops engaged. K, in his history, gives a clear summary of its original object and unfortunate results. Quote, the expedition across the Indus was undertaken with the object of creating in Afghanistan a barrier against the encroachment from the west. The advance of the British army was designed to check the aggression of Persia on the Afghan frontier, and to baffle Russian intrigues by the substitution of a friendly for an unfriendly power in the countries beyond the Indus. After an enormous waste of blood and treasure, we left every town and village in Afghanistan bristling with our enemies. Before the British army crossed the Indus, the English name had been honoured in Afghanistan. Some dim traditions of the splendour of Mr. Elphinstone's mission had been all that the Afghans associated with their thoughts of the English nation. But in their place 
we left galling memories of the progress of a desolating army. Unquote. The history of the war from the first to last deserves careful consideration, and if the lessons taught by it are taken to heart, they will materially assist in determining the principles which should guide our policy on the northwest frontier of India. End of chapter 1